verses 14 and 15. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. May God the Holy Spirit perfect my words and your ears this morning. We have the purging, urging, and emerging church that we see here this morning. And for those of you that are looking for that 3 a.m., what's the message all about, preacher, that we talked about last time, that's to be able to encapsulate your message in one sentence that anybody waking up at 3.30 in the morning could say, Preacher, what's the message about this week? Well, you have the same responsibility if I come wake you up this Wednesday morning about 3 o'clock in the morning and say, What was the sermon about this week? And it's this, that the spiritual well-being of the entire church is the responsibility of the entire church. It's a no-brainer. So, you know, pastors and elders have the responsibility of managing the household of God and shepherding the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood, a task any elder takes very seriously with our various strengths and abilities that God has given us to do that. And God has an awful lot to say about shepherds, particularly throughout the Old Testament. We see in the prophets Jeremiah, Zechariah, Ezekiel, God addressing the shepherds that are failing to shepherd his people Israel some of them making themselves fat off the flock, some of them neglecting, not going after the lost sheep, any number of things that God addresses. Well, this portion of the Scripture speaks to the obligation, potentially one we all have with joy, of each member looking out for the spiritual vitality of each member. This is not just a role filled by pastors and elders, and deacons for that matter. This is a role that everybody in the church that is the follower of Jesus Christ, has. Now, in my Bible, my ESV study Bible, the passage heading here before verses 12 through 22 is final instructions and benedictions. And I think that's an unfortunate title heading because it kind of makes it sound like, oh, by the way, here's a few other things to clean up for you you got to take care of. I wish it would read something like imperatives and benedictions. Imperatives and because these are these are the lived out product that we see in verses uh, really twelve through twenty two the lived out byproduct of the gospel that Paul has been preaching to the Thessalonians. You know Paul's method in all his letters is first. Well, let me before I ask this, does anybody here have a condition called orthokardia? Okay, yes, you do. <clears throat> Paul's method in all his letters is. Orthodoxy, which produces orthokadia, which produces orthopraxy. So orthodoxy is right doctrine. Paul preaches right doctrine. This leads to orthokadia, or a right heart. And it is from that right heart that flows orthopraxy, which is right practice. Sound preaching and teaching the gospel, which leads to a conversion in the heart, which leads to outward actions that give ample evidence of what is going on inside the heart. So we're ortho-Jesus freaks this morning. And First Thessalonians is Paul's very first letter. This letter predates the Gospels. The earliest Gospel being Mark, which 
you know, it was debatable whether it came out around 50 or 60, but this letter predates even the Gospels. It's the first epistle that Paul wrote. But he establishes in this an order and a pattern that he's going to pursue throughout all of his letters, general letters to the churches. This is a very young church, recall. It's a very young church. And so the instructions that we're going to get in verses 14 and 15, and that which precedes it, Justin preached on a few weeks back in verse 12 to 13 on how to respect your elders and to those that labor among you and are over you. And then what's going to follow in the coming weeks as well is, in a sense, tough love. And when we think of that term, tough love, we tend to think in terms of, you know, we, we might know someone that's addicted to, to a substance of some kind and we have to get involved in their lives in such a way that it's going to be difficult for the person whose lives we're getting involved in, but we've got to show them tough love if we're going to get them out of this jam. Right? But tough love in this particular case really has to do with how tough it is for us to do. <laughs> what we're called here is tough to do. And it really is at times when I'm preparing to preach, that's when I tend to really put the kind of study, and I wish I always did on any given time, do you come face to face with the reality of these are not just words in the text and some general instruction about how to live. This is what characterizes a Christian person in the body as well. So it is tough love. And it's tough because it's for the benefit of somebody else. Right? It's for somebody else's benefit and for the church. At times, our tendency is to admonish and correct or even encourage. And when we do that, it's a way of making ourselves more comfortable. This is very insidious, the way that we go about admonishing, encouraging, and helping. It, uh, we can have mixed motives. Sometimes we say, you know, you need to change because I love me too much to put up with you the way you are. <laughs> I love me too much to put up with you the way that you are. You're just making me too uncomfortable. And we can sometimes even veil our more selfish intentions with what well, this is for the glory of God. Someone irritates us, and we want to not be irritated, so we correct them with the goal of easing our irritation, with little regard for the other person and how he or she could really benefit from not doing the things that irritate other people. You see the difference? And add to that our natural aversion to confronting people because we fear rejection or we fear a negative response and you find that you're not interacting, we're not interacting with one another, not involved in one another's lives in some very important ways at times. We're to be looking out for the interests of others, but again, sometimes this encouragement, some this correction that we want to give, this admonishment, is because we're looking out for ourselves in some way. We need our lovinator recalibrated. <laughs> it's hard to seek. It's hard to seek after the good of all until you have settled on the reality that God meets all your spiritual, emotional, psychological needs. There are myriad ways we seek to be comfortable and safe in our own skin, even in dealing with other people that God has already provided for in the gospel as we seek attention, as we don't want to be rejected, as we're afraid of what people might think, or we don't think that we know enough to say what needs to be said. There are things about our psyche, there are things about our heart, there's things about our being that if we would just settle on the fact that God fully accepts us, 
and we are fully accepted in the beloved, then we would be free to exercise the things that God directs us to here and in other places in Scripture. In our text this week, Paul is urging the entire church. You know, the, the, the title of this is The Purging, Urging, and Emerging Church because what we see is a process and a pattern, again with Paul, where we have been purged from the power and the penalty of sin and are continuing to be purged of those elements in our lives. There's a purging. There's a purgation that has taken place. There's a cleansing of moral guilt before our great God and King and our Savior. We have been, we have been cleansed. We are being purged. And there's a process of urging God's people to be the kind of people that he always intended for them to be. Urging them, beseeching them, as Paul says in other places. Why? So that we can emerge at last as the kind of people that God always had in mind when God envisioned a people of God. So we are a purging, urging, and emerging church. And in this instance, we are seeing Paul urging the entire church to these important tasks that ensure the unity and the stability, the spiritual well-being of the church. This word urging is the same word that Paul says in Romans 12.1, where he says, I therefore beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable act of worship. I beseech you, I urge you. In other words, it's urgent that you do this. And Paul's statement, I beseech you to do this, brethren, also came at the end of 11 chapters of sound doctrine including the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, and then things uh, concurrent with that gospel, the way that it would affect people's lives. Paul's pattern is always that way. It is always laying this foundation, first of all, and giving us what we need, what is necessary for us to be the kind of people that we are called to be. That is not a task that we can do to ourselves and for ourselves. So gospel doctrine always precedes gospel instruction as it does again in this letter. In the first two chapters of this book, Paul refers to the Word of God nine times. And particularly, the Word of God is, 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 is another term for the gospel and how Paul was preaching the gospel and open, opening up to them the many realities of the gospel to this young, young church. Over in chapter 1, uh, for example, verses 4 through the first half of verse 5, I'll be bouncing back and forth a little bit through these earlier chapters. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And then down in verse, uh, uh, the last part of uh, verse 5, he says, I'm sorry, down in uh, 9 and 10, he says, How you turn to God from idols to serve the living God, and true God, and to wait for a son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The good news of the crucified, risen Lord was purging them of the idols, of sin's power and sin's penalty, so that they were able to turn to the living God, urging them to the steadfastness as they were emerging as God's image bearers. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy had given them an example of what he's now asking them to do. In the second chapter, uh, verse 12, he says, uh, in verse 11, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls us into his own kingdom and glory. Paul prayed for the power of the church at Thessalonica to fulfill the royal commandment to love. 
over in uh, chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, where we read, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verses 16 to 17, Paul reminds them that Christ is going to return. You are going to see him and be with him forever. Right? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll always be with the Lord. Well, why is Paul telling him all these things? Five, chapter 5, verses 9 to 10. Paul repeats the end to which all God's chosen people are called. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Paul has done all that he can do to lay the foundation for what he's about to ask them to do, the extraction. Don't you find that you're a much more tolerant person when you know something good is on the way? I'm a much friendlier person probably at work on Friday than I am on Tuesday. Very frankly, right? You get, you know, I'm, I, what I do in the other world is I, I do uh, IT things as well as some other things, information technology. And sometimes I'll get a call and I see who's calling and I already know what a sense of it's going to be. And I'm like, oh, you know. But I get that call on a Friday and I'm like, hey, what can I do for you? You know, it's just different because... I should be kind. I should be helpful. I should be good. I should be doing everything I can to make their job possible so that they can make the warehouse's job possible so that the warehouse can get the product on the truck and the truck can get out to the store and everybody's making money and the owners are happy. That's the way it's supposed to work. And it's just a lot easier to be that person when you know something wonderful awaits, right? Uh, we see this around the Christmas holiday, right? Everybody's a little bit nicer because... It's just this thing built into us where people are going to be loving and singing songs together and the, the culture for a little while is just a little bit happier. And so I think that's kind of what goes on here with, with the gospel and the example Paul is setting and the prayer that he's making and the encouraging and the exhorting he's doing. He's helping to create a heart in them where it just becomes a natural reflex to do what he's calling them to do next. Encourage and exhort and admonish and Paul preached the gospel. He lived in the power of the gospel. He encouraged with the, with the gospel. He set a, a gospel example of living well. He assured them there's no wrath of God for them, but only a guarantee of living forever with Jesus and with one another. So now he can give the important instruction. Now he can urge them to be purging and emerging. And he says to them, admonish the idle. Your translations might say the disorderly. Or the undisciplined. Well, who are they? Who are the, 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 the disorderly in this church? And who are the idle? Maybe we get a little hint of that back in chapter 12. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. Where he says, And to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you might walk properly. So it's very likely... Paul is very consistent in this book where he's, everything he's saying is built upon something else he's already saying, right? So it may very well be that these disruptive ones, these idle ones, are not living a quiet life. They're not doing everything that they can be to work. 
and, and do the things they're supposed to do, and they're not really minding their own business. You know, they're getting all up in someone else's business all the time. Uh, they may be they may be loud, uh, always having too much to say about everything else, uh, b- being overly involved with what 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 should be happening in the church, but never doing anything to help make it happen. Right. Second Thessalonians, the third chapter, Paul talks about. You remember what we told you before? He said, "If anyone's not willing to work, then neither should he eat." So we know that this is a problem in Thessalonica. Whether people were just anticipating the Lord's coming, like. You know, I'm just going to sit back here. But in any case, Paul's laying that out here. I think it was Ben Franklin said, Idle hands are the devil's playthings. Idle hands. People that sit around not doing what they should be doing. People getting involved and not minding sort of their own business, getting all caught up in, in other things. Paul says, admonish them. Admonish means in particular, put in mind to obey God's instructions. And... Really, Webster's is quite helpful because it says to express warning or disapproval, but especially in a gentle, earnest way. Especially in a gentle, earnest way. When someone needs to be admonished, when they need to be reminded of something about life in the kingdom, when they need to be reminded about something, this type of person, this disruptor, this idle person, the approach is to be gentle and earnest. And, and, and you know, you know, how do you do that? You know, uh, Somebody is is perhaps always sort of making noise about something, right? Always sort of just you know they always have something to say, but never really sort of maybe they don't they don't attend Bible studies, they don't they're never seen around the Word of God, you know, and they're just sort of idle and disruptive in that way. To come alongside them and and, and to just sort of remind them, say, hey, look, you might go for a cup of coffee with them or something like that. You might say, look, you're a thinking person. I can see that. <laughs> you always get something to say. I'd love to see you come to Bible study. Man, look, come and, and, and contribute. Put that good energy to use, you know? Admonish them in that, in that way. Encourage the faint-hearted, Paul says. People that are struggling. There are people in, this, in the church here in Thessalonica, as well as here, that are struggling. They're faint of heart. That they're, kind of, they're, just, they're, very, that they're faint of heart. They might be depressed. They might be anxious. Worried about certain things in, in the church here. There were those that were worried about others who had departed. Am I going to see him again? That's why Paul had to give him some encouragement. He had to encourage them. Look, the Lord's, look, you're going to see them again. The Lord's coming back. They're going to be with Jesus. We're going to be with Jesus. We're all going to be together. This was really discouraging to them. We don't, not so much. We, 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 we kind of know this. Uh, there, was, there was persecution happening. Paul mentioned that back earlier in, in the chapter as well. He said, you, you, you were, you're being treated the same way that your brothers in Jerusalem were being treated. You're suffering persecution. Well, that, can, that, can, that can produce feelings of helplessness and despair and difficulty in a person. You know, how do you generally encourage faint-hearted people? You know, how do you encourage them? How do you encourage somebody that's faint-hearted? How do you come alongside them and... You know, we see the way Paul does it. He does it with the Word of God. But it, but make sure you give them some time. Listen to them. Try to understand what they are so you can give a fit word in due season. Right? So you can encourage them in the gospel. You know, get, get them involved in Scripture. Distract them from whatever it is that's dis- distracting them. You know? And then, yeah, they may need additional help beyond that. But this is something that we can be doing to encourage the faint-hearted. They're in there. They're in the church. 
They're experiencing difficulty and hardship. Help the weak. Paul says, help the weak. The weak in faith. Uh, those perhaps with a weak conscience. Back, back in the fourth chapter, verses 3 to 7. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger of all these things. As we told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called you to impurity, but in holiness. Perhaps people seeing themselves struggle with this particular sin. They're they're struggling with sexual immorality. They're struggling with the passions of lust. And and they're they're weak in faith. They they, they read about, you know, uh, the Lord is an avenger of all these things. And sometimes from the pulpit we get reminded of that, you know. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom. We hear things, and people that struggle with these things begin to doubt their salvation. They begin to question whether they're okay. Why am I still struggling with this thing after all this time? Is there something wrong with me? That that, that person is is weak. They need help. They're weak in faith. Maybe that they're physically weak. There are other things going on. Back in uh, Acts chapter 20, verse uh, 35, Paul says, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how himself said it's more blessed to give than receive. So maybe there's some physical need uh, that, that they need help with. And, and when Paul was dealing with the, the church in Rome and all the issues that were going back there in the 15th chapter, the first verse he says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let us each please our neighbor for his good to build him up. Uh, these people had a weak sort of uninformed conscience or an immature conscience they maybe in today's maybe somebody newly comes in out of out of say roman catholicism or some other uh, tradition and, and they're fearful about eating meat on fridays during during what's known as the lenten season and so that bothers them right and what, what are you gonna do you're gonna mock that you're gonna come alongside them you're gonna know what is going on with them why are they fearful Paul also talks about us all being members of the same body and all members are important. He says, but we bestow more honor on the less presentable parts. Now, that's not necessarily true in our culture today. Today, we bestow less honor on our less presentable parts, all right? There's a reason why I'm not standing up here in a Speedo, okay? We, we put on a shirt and a tie when we preach, all right? There's a reason why we don't dress in a... There, we, we, we bestow... We put on certain parts of our bodies things that ought to be put on. They ought to remain covered. We bestow more honor on them. Well, there, there are people in, in the churches that at times just need that extra honor bestowed upon them because we're, they're not the ones that we would consider to be the, 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 the things that we want the church to be known for. So how do you respond to them? Well, Paul's telling you how to do that right there. He help them. That word help is stay close to them. Keep a grip on them. Keep a good grip on them. They might be getting very ready to fall irrevocably. And so it should be evident as we're doing this, quite evident actually, that you have to know one another well enough to observe these struggles. We have to spend time with one another to see. I mean, I didn't get to go to the outing the other night. But suppose out at, at, down at the Pombrians, that nice big thing they put on outside there with all the people in the neighborhood thought revival was breaking out. Somebody's off by themselves just sitting on the dock staring out at the water, right? You gotta, and and you're like, that person's not usually that way. You've got to spend time with you got to know people. You've got to pay attention to people so you know when they need this help, right? And not to assume that one of the elders is taking care of it. <laughs> Don't just assume one of the elders is taking care of it. 
it may well be that we are, but you know what? They need you as well. You might be trying to attend to them and, and you're, you're running into trouble, so you speak to a deacon and you speak to a, That's how it works. We are our brother and sister's keeper. We rejoice together, we strive together, we weep together. And then, so Paul goes on to say, and this, and this, is, this is where the rub is in many ways quite often, be patient with them all. <laughs> be patient with the disorderly, be patient with the idle and the busybodies, be patient with the faint-hearted, be patient with the weak. Look, disorderly people tend to offend others. <laughs> right? It's easy to become impatient with disorderly disruptive idle people and this must lead to this may lead to gossip under the guise of talking to someone else about that person right I, 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 talking about that offender out of, out of out of concern for them so I'm going to talk to about three or four other people in the church about that person because I'm concerned for them no no shut up and, and just go to that person save your energies and your voice to it just go admonish that person yourself just go to them yourself so that Maybe maybe the other person hasn't, they probably have if someone's disruptive, they've noticed it, but maybe others haven't noticed it quite as much. Just go and take care of that. You know, think about what do you like when you're impatient, right? What, what do you like when you're, when you're impatient with that person that irks us? There's just someone that irks you, and they might even be in the same church. Well, if that's the case, you've got the problem. John Stott, I think it was, said, the welfare of the offender must be the prime objective. Man, that runs counter to everything that we do out in the, we hear on the world. The welfare of the offender must be our prime objective. We're always so concerned about the offended, which is usually you or, or me, right? It's not our natural inclination. How are you going to get to be from that person that's like that to the one that's... If, if somebody's doing this to really be concerned about their well-being, there's something not going on in that person that's just not quite right. right? Listen, and you know this. Listen to yourself when you're talking to somebody if we could only record ourselves once in a while, you'd hear yourself how you sounded when you were talking with that person you were impatient with versus how you were talking to somebody else. You know that there's a considerable difference. And in you can feel it when you're talking to the person. Uh, if you're like me, unfortunately, I can't hide that at all. I don't hide it at all. I don't even try anymore. Do we understand the summer week? Do we impatiently wonder when are they going to get over it? Right? Are we weary of their weakness? Are we disgusted by it? Same with the faint-hearted. Do we become impatient with them? Do we, do we throw Bible rocks at them? <laughs> right? As if we can sort of shame them out of it. Do we become easily frustrated with people that just don't understand us or appreciate us? You know, God's people. Do we have to say they're precious to them? Every single person is equally precious. God has no favorites. Everyone is precious. They, they, and so they must be precious also to us. They are to the extent that we are deeply touched by the mercy and grace of God. But to the extent that we're touched by God's mercy and grace, to that same extent we will be merciful and gracious of God and Christ Jesus. And, and he goes on to say... <laughs> See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Do, do, do God's people really need to be reminded not to repay evil with evil and to always seek the good of one another in the church and unbelievers? Well, apparently it is. Because here it is in Scripture telling them to be so. 
born-again people being told, do not repay evil with evil. Oh, wait a minute, doesn't the Holy Spirit just generate that in us? Apparently not. The Holy Spirit inspires the Word of God to touch in us the thing that needs to be fixed. It also seems that there are people in the body that will at times do evil to one another. That must break our hearts. To stop and think that you could do evil to somebody else in the church should break your heart and mine. That the temptation of it should bother you as much as anything. And I'm not saying you're going to strike the person or hurt them, but there's lots of little ways, microaggressions, <laughs> we could commit against other members of the body. Real ones, Bill, not the, not the phony ones. If, but if we go back to the cross always, this is the key. If we go back to the cross always, seeing Jesus suffering in our place and knowing our own record of transgression, and each one of those sins represented by a stripe on that scarred, bloody, beat-up body. Well, you know, every little when they when they tore the thorn of crowns off his head before they put him on the cross, and little thorns were left remain behind, stuck in his skin. One of those little thorns on it says Pat's lying on it, or Mark's impatience on it. You know, you got to go back and see that. Perhaps that will change us. It's meant to. That is meant to be the thing that that just fires off this response in us that Paul's talking to. The psalmist said, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who would stand? If he were to keep track of our sin. He doesn't keep track of it. If he were to mark it, if he were to just continually mark our sin, who could not? Well, the answer is a, it's a rhetorical question. Who could stand? Nobody. You know, Jesus said, as we forgive one another, so will our Heavenly Father forgive us. Right? He says, forgive one another, <clears throat> you know, forgive us our trespasses, even as we forgive those who trespass against us. And he goes on to say, for if you forgive not your brother from your heart, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. What does that mean? Is that some works salvation? Love N.T. Wright's comment on this. He said, not to forgive is to shut down a faculty in the innermost person which happens to be the same faculty that can receive God's forgiveness. So if you're not a forgiving person, then that thing that's in you, that forgivenator, <laughs> is blocked on one side or the other. And if that's the case, you're not going to be able to receive God's forgiveness the right way either. That thing is not working. So if you get nothing else, I guess, from the sermon, you find out that you've got a lovenator and a forgivenator, and the way to calibrate those is through purging and urging till you're emerging with a healthy lovenator and forgivenator. In this church, we must seek to do good to anyone who offends, pushes our buttons, gets on our last nerve. I got news for you. God has given you yet another nerve to be gotten on. We don't run out of nerves. There is no last nerve in God's people. You don't have a last nerve. God gets the last nerve. And when he he acts on his last nerve, look out. We We must not be sheep in wolves' clothing. No, I'm not saying that wrong. I know what a wolf in sheep's clothing is. But if we are generally God's people, we are sheep. Sometimes we put on wolves' clothing. We must not be sheep in wolves' clothing. We must seek to do good to the disruptive and the idle and seek to do good to the faint-hearted and the weak among us. And any one of us could be any one of those people at any given time. Seek to do good also, he says, to everyone 
to one another. And, just when you thought it was safe to stay in church, and to everyone, unbelievers. Seek to do good to unbelievers. Jesus has sent us to them. His elect are among the unbelievers. Today's wolf may be tomorrow's sheep. Which brings me to thoughts about the contemporary culture. How do we do good to the doctor who makes millions of dollars mutilating the bodies of minors in the name of transgender affirming health care? How do we do good to that person? We have to admonish. We have to warn. We have to say, look, I need to tell you something about Jesus. He said anyone that causes any of these little ones of mine, these children to stumble, be better for him if a millstone were tied around his neck in the deepest sea. Oh, you know what a millstone is? Think of a jersey barrier. Think of a jersey barrier tied around your neck. And you dropped down next to the Titanic where you belong. We have to find that we also have to use whatever protocols that we have in the government to defeat these kinds of things, of course, but the emphasis here is on personal interactions and personal relationships. And this letter was written to a very young church. New Testament doctrine was still being communicated by the Holy Spirit to Paul and Peter and the others. Right? The churches of the Lord Jesus Christ have now for you know, 2,000 years the complete canon. We have everything, right? The full collection of all inspired revelation that we'll ever need. There is no, there's nothing new coming by way of revelation. We, we await fulfillment. We, wait, we await the return of Jesus. And yet, even us with this canon, this compl- we still need this instruction for this church in this culture today. Because there are things happening today in the culture that are new to us. In a way, we are a new church in certain ways. In the same way that the Thessalonians were, were a new church. There were things going on in their culture, in their world, that resulted in their suffering and persecution. And likewise for us. I mean, there are, these are bizarre days. We're baffled at the breakneck speed at which so many evils are taking place, aren't we? Isn't it amazing how fast this proliferation of filth has happened? It's, this is... It, it's dizzying. You know, the church over the years has said there's been somewhat of this uh, uh, something of, 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 of Christianity in the fabric, you know, of the culture for a lot of years. I mean, there was a sense anyway of, of virtue to some degree that was uh, it had to develop it, the residue. You know, years ago when you used to shut your TV off, you'd have this like image on the screen that stayed there for like five minutes after you shut it off. That's what Christianity was like in the culture for a lot of years. Not anymore. That screen is shut off, man. There's nothing. It's just a blank screen now. You know, our nest, <clears throat> this, we're, we're celebrating this weekend, right? Our nation's 247 years of freedom, you know, from tyranny. You know, but, but, but tyranny is for evil reasons, sown into the whoop and woof of human governance. <laughs> it's, it, it's like water. It always finds a way back in. We can be grateful this week. It's funny how God looks out for his people, right? So a a Christian web designer was determined they don't have to design a website for same-sex marriage. And and this this lovely woman says, I give my services to homosexual couples. Say, I'll give my services to anyone. But don't ask me to celebrate that which is not marriage in my faith. I can't do that. And the Supreme Court gave a victory to God's people in that way. 
just sort of insulating us a little bit so that our worship, is a, they may <clears throat> do other things and they're going to, but so that something that acknowledged, that, that's a gift from God. And why do I bring that up? I'm not just checking a patriotic box because it's 4th of July weekend, but we are in that weekend and so the culture is happening and these things are going on and so I ask myself these questions. Back in First Chronicles chapter 12, the 32nd chapter, describing the mighty men of David's army, it says, And they were men of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times, men who had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. We must understand the times. There are very real and new pressures on the churches, and, and, and some people are caving. Churches are caving to these things. And God is allowing this evil to proliferate for whatever purpose it's going on. God's allowing it. God is still sovereign in it, as he is in all history. Now, remember, Peter at one point said, persecution is going to happen. It's part of our sort of... He said, and he goes on to say that, but judgment begins at the house of God. There are things going on in the churches at that time that God was using because there was judgment taking place in the house of God where perhaps there weren't real people that were God's people. So given the cultural pressures and the conditions are ripe for Christian people to be affected in ways that show up as weak, faint-hearted, maybe even becoming so distracted that they become disruptive in the churches, railing against the evil of culture and neglecting the primacy of what Paul is saying. And when the churches become overly patriotic instead of Christ- Christiotic, <laughs> Christiotic, right? Well, much like this first audience, we're in a particular culture at a particular time with particular pressures. We're not insulated. We're not, we're not inoculated against all that's going on out there. Let us admonish such a one with patience, seeking their good. Some in the churches may be very discouraged by what they experience in their job. And say, are you kidding me? Or, or and it's not easy for them to just drop the job and go somewhere else. Or what they're seeing going on in their children's schools. Very discouraging. People are becoming very faint-hearted about this, so much so that some of them are just shell-shocked. What are we going to do, sort of mock and scorn them? Suppose, you know, you know this was going on during, uh, during the whole COVID thing. It got to be sort of popular, even in churches, where people are mocking people they disagreed with. Ha, what are you wearing that mask for? You bought the lie. What's your brother or your sister there? Maybe they just they don't get it. Why is mocking and scorn... The answer to our brothers and sisters in the church. What if somebody in the church, for whatever reason, pressures at work, they're seeing this in people's email all the time, where a lady named Carol says pronouns he, she, her, and a guy has, you know, uh, John, you know, pronouns he. What if, what if they become that way and they're sensitive and they start doing and saying those things themselves? What are you going to say to them? You're going to make fun of them? What are you doing that for? What are you giving into the culture for? Well, it's not that simple. They may be faint-hearted. They may be weak. They're getting overcome. They need Jesus, love through you and through me. So let's encourage and help them with patience and seeking their good. All these things, he says, never repaying evil for evil. You know, suffering and persecution are part of our inheritance. We must look after one another, like the church in Thessalonica. You know, there remains the gospel labor of purging that which is contrary to Christ-like love, of urging one another to Christ-like love, emerging as a body of people that recognize us 
where other people recognize us as disciples by the way we love one another with Christ-like love. And at last, my unbelieving visitors and friends, I urge you to confess and repent your sin of unbelief and your sin of life against God, that you may be purged of the evil that is in you, that you would emerge as a fulfilled human who spends what is left of your time on this earth for the glory of God and then forever upon Jesus' return? Or would you prefer God repay you for your evil? Lord, your word has gone forth, now accomplished by it, your will for your church. Amen. And if Denise would come back up, we're going to sing.